and welcome to another episode of The The Wild Wild White. In this month's episode, we have a report from artist Kay McCran's recent exhibition at Key Arts called Mini Beasts, Mark Making and Me. We find out about I Watch Wildlife Species of the Month, frogs, toads and spawn. We have some landscape listening recorded at Rosemary Fields in Ride and a musical nature soundscape by musician Joanne Thornton. But first, let's take a look at the Glanville Fritillary Butterfly. The Glanville Fritillary is an orange and black checkerboard pattern butterfly that is common across the whole of Europe but extremely rare in the UK. In fact, the Isle of Wight is pretty much the only place where you can find established colonies, which makes it a very important species for the island. The caterpillar's main food is ribwort planting, which is found pretty much all across the island, with the south-facing undercliffs and chalk downland being particularly good for them, as the eroding coast promotes constant new growth of their favourite food. As a point of interest here, the plant family that we have in the UK called plantain, which includes ribwort, narrowleaf and English plantain, is completely unrelated to the genus Musa, where the cultivated edible banana and plantain come from. We sat down with Andy Butler, who is the butterfly record keeper for the Isle of Wight Natural History and Archaeological Society. Hello Andy and welcome to the show. Could you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and how you got into studying butterflies? Well I've been interested in natural history from when I was very young. All of us really started out with birds and we'd we'd be given uh, the Observer's Book of Birds was like a Christmas present for eight or nine year olds and sometimes it stuck and sometimes it was disregarded. Well in my case that you know it stuck, so that's where my interest in natural history started. And then you move on from birds to everything else. And uh, butterflies I got into about 40-odd years ago. And you were involved in the Isle of Wight Natural History Archaeological Society? Yeah, yeah, I'm the butterfly recorder. What do you have to do to collect data about the Glanville fritillary? The only thing I really have to do is, in 1981, the society set up a survey for the glanville and the glanville the early stage of the glanville the caterpillars make webs and in march selected sites along the island mostly on the south coast of the island we count the webs so it gives you an idea of the population size and i took that over 20 odd years ago i don't know i can't remember now and it's the longest survey of its type uh, in the world i think some of the sites have disappeared, obviously because the coastline's unstable. And we've included one site, Wheeler's Bay, which is a fairly new site. But other than that, we've just stuck to the original sites. If you want an idea of how the butterfly is doing, it gives you a good idea. But the only thing is they have what we call a boom and bust. So sometimes their numbers drop catastrophically, and other times there's lots of them. This Last year, 2022, they were very, very low. They're probably, in a few years' time, you know, very quickly, they recover. The worst year, I think, was 2013. And we only had 13 webs total out of all the sites. But normally it works out to, you know, in the hundreds. So by visiting the same sites year on year, you can track population changes and know if it's a good year or a bad year. Could you tell us a bit about its life cycle, please? The eggs are laid on ribwort plantain, 
that is found on sort of freshly slit cliffs, which is why it's a coastal species. So the caterpillars hatch out. They then form a web. They use the web as a base to forage out. And you can sometimes find, you know, caterpillars all over the place. They do wander off looking for food. And that's sometimes when they're vulnerable. They, they get eaten or trodden on if they're on paths uh, or they run out of food. They hibernate through the winter as, as a caterpillar. They form like a, it's like a web, but it, it's like shrimp wrap, if you like. And they're all in there lined up in little lines. They seem to be impervious to anything. I found them very early spring in, in frosty weather with frost actually on them. And then they come out again in when we look for them in March. And then they turn into a chrysalis, and that is hidden in either in the grass or under stones. And then they'll hatch out, usually butterflies on the wing, usually about April. They're a colonies from Ventnor, round the coast of the Military Road, all the way up to West White, and now you're finding some newer colonies on the Chalk Downlands as well. They only ever you were found along the coast. But they've expanded their range now. They're all they're all over the island. And do you think that's because the ribwort plantain is spread across the island, or are they feeding on other plants, or is there another reason for them spreading out? It's probably temperature control. You know, we've got the world has got a little bit warmer, and it's, it suits them. In Britain, they're at the very northern tip of their range. On the continent, they live in flowery meadows. Nature's not daft, you know. They, they'll adapt. Uh, and to the conditions as well as the island where they're very common you can also find them in pockets across the south coast in hampshire and dorset and a few even further inland whatever people would tell you the ones on the mainland have all been taken there from caterpillars from here last year we had evidence of the people taking caterpillars so people are coming to the island collecting caterpillars and trying to establish colonies on the mainland i thought it had died out but it hasn't they're still doing it so do they have any sort of protection status that should stop people from collecting them from the wild? Not really. They don't have a lot of protection. They're, they're protected. You can't sell them, but you can buy anything you like on, on the internet. And they say they're, they're from old stock and they haven't been collected from the wild. So the protection is not good. You know, it's fairly minimal. As most of the sites on the island are National Trust sites, it is actually illegal to collect either the caterpillar or its chrysalis from National Trust land. If people want to spot them in the wild, how can they do that? And is there a good place they can spot them in a safe way? In 1991, I think it was, there was a small colony in Bonchurch Landslip, and it's right on the edge of the cliff. And it was disappearing over the over the cliff, and it was pretty obvious that it was going it was going to disappear. And this sea defence system along here, which is normally not good for glanwells because it, it stabilises the coast and and gets vegetated and what have you, and, and they lose their the plantain. But anyway, in this instance, this sea defence here uh, was finished in 1988. And this little colony in the, in the landslip, I said to my wife, they're going to go over the cliff. I said, it doesn't look too bad with this work along here. It may be an idea to rescue some and put them down here. So she collected up a, just a handful, put them up the end there, and they've been there ever since. It's the longest introduced colony there is. It is... A good spot because it's easy for people to see them from. And they're still there. So we're talking about Wheeler's Bay Car Park in Ventnor. You can walk down to the seawall and have a look along there for some Glanvilles. It's, it's the ideal place and it has been 
since it started, really. They're easy to see and you can walk along. You're not going to cause any trouble. You don't have to climb over. Walk along and every year we get loads of people come here looking for them. Well, thank you, Andy. It's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you. Frogs and toads are a diverse group of amphibians that belong to the order Anura. They have long hind legs adapted for jumping and a short white body. Frogs and toads are known for their distinctive croaks and calls, which they use to communicate and attract mates. They are also active hunters, feeding on a variety of insects, spiders and other small animals. Keep an eye out across the island for any signs of spawn from February onwards. Ponds that are shady and have lots of reeds are favoured by frogs and toads. From March onwards, you'll be able to spot tadpoles, and from April to May, you'll see them developing into froglets. Please take some photos and take a note of the time, date and location and send it to iWatchWildlife at gmail.com. This series is brought to you with the support of the Isle of Wight Creative Network. The Isle of Wight Creative Network supports artists and creatives on the Isle of Wight through business support, networking, resources and profiling, allowing creatives to thrive and become more sustainable. If you want to take a look at the work the Creative Network does or find out how you can sign up, just go to iwcreativenetwork.com or search IW Creative Network on Facebook and Instagram. For our second feature this episode, we went down to Key Arts to see artist Kay McCran at the end of her exhibition called Mini Beasts, Mark Making and Me. Kay's practice researches the everyday interactions between humans and mini beasts, which include bees, butterflies, ants, woodlice, snails, grasshoppers and worms, as well as some of the more unloved creatures we live alongside. Her work is important as we're experiencing a period of insect decline and is particularly relevant to the island as a UNESCO biosphere reserve. Through drawing and mark making, Kay is exploring how we can better connect with and understand the small and wonderfully varied mini beasts that live in our homes and gardens. Kay talks us through her PhD studies, the exhibition at Key Arts and lets us try out some of her mark making techniques. We then sat down to discuss the role that mini beasts play in our lives and what changes we could make to better share the world with them. And then you would go out and you would look for little creepy crawlies and little bugs that might live. Sometimes we still do that. Oh, good. Um, Well, I've done that as well with uh, previous jobs and stuff. And then I've also always drawn. Do you like drawing? Yeah. So I started thinking a lot, maybe those two things could be pulled together a bit more in schools. So I'm doing this PhD and this is the culmination, this is like four years worth of work, which seems a bit ridiculous, but there's a lot of thinking (laughs) that goes into it. So basically I'm asking this question, how can drawing help me investigate mini beasts? Better? Yeah. Yeah? So rather than drawing them dead, like in a museum, like when you see them on a re- on a tray with pins in them and stuff, yeah. like butterflies and that, which is how we always used to do it for the like, last 500 years. I'm going, well, that doesn't really tell me a lot about how they move or yeah. what they sound like. Yeah, so I've got five different videos 
that people can queue into for QR codes, and then they're all being played there. Look, that, that's me trying to be a beetle. <laughs> so I was trying to move like the beetle, and then I was trying to make marks while I was moving like the beetle. And then I was just asking the question, does that help me understand more? Because I think if you try and move your body in a way that, you, that an animal would move, then that sometimes can be quite interesting when you do some drawing. So I have three main ways of doing drawing. So I draw without looking at the paper, okay? I draw with my eyes shut, which is also quite bonkers, and I draw moving my body. Do you want to have a go? Yeah, I guess so. Okay, cool. Because <laughs> I brought some stuff. So let's try this first, right? This is what I'm doing at the moment. I've been buying up, you know, like when you go to the hairdresser. Yeah. yeah so pop this on. <laughs> so now you can't see what you're doing. So you're going to need a bit of card and you're going to need a pen. So let's try and draw this ant here. It's quite complicated. And remember, you're not drawing the ants. What you're drawing is, this is quite complicated, you're drawing the experience of looking at the ants. Does that make sense? And when you think about art that you would have seen to do with mini beasts, we used to draw them because we didn't have a photograph because we wanted a very accurate specimen drawing and that's fine but what we're trying to do here is find more other fun ways of drawing. I think I'm finished. Okay great! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah that's oh, wow. good! Yeah. So that's all like Oh yeah that. very good! What you find was interesting, when you do these different ways of drawings, it might not look exactly like it, but it does pick up an element of yeah. mm -hmm. antsness. Yeah. Okay, great. Next challenge. So this is the next thing I do a lot of. I do drawing with my eyes shut. So now you need a separate one. Let's do another one. So you're going to have a look at the ant, and you're also going to think about all the things that you know about ants inside. So put your blindfold on. Don't start drawing straight away because you kind of need a moment to gather yourself when you've got a blindfold on. Because what's going to happen is your eyes are going to stop working, but everything else is going to work a little bit harder. And then don't take your blindfold off until you're happy that you've drawn everything you wanted to about that and on that bit of paper. I'm trying to do it like a one-line drawing. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Very good idea. And I think that's good. Yeah, that is good. So let's have a think now, like, so we've done this one, this is your drawing without looking, this is your drawing with your eyes shut, yeah, so now, on this paper I want you to draw just the movement of ants, so imagine that you're tracking one ant, okay, so start in the corner and just, here you are, so now I want you to just, you can always close your eyes if that helps, and imagine ants running along. So you're not drawing the actual ant, you're just drawing a line of the movement. If my pen is an ant, and it starts here, and it's on this piece of paper, well, where might it go? Well, I think it would probably go. It doesn't really matter at all where it goes. It doesn't, but what you've Even got to think... it crosses over. When you start comparing that with other mini-beasts, like, for example, if I said to you now, OK, over here, your pen is now a slug, how does that move? You have to be sort of like slower. That's right, yeah. And if I said to you over here, your pen is now a grasshopper, how does that move? You just go like, you sort of have to do that. That's right, yeah. So sometimes drawing the movement of mini beasts helps us 
think about how their bodies are different and how their movement is different. And when you do that on a great long bit of paper, it can be really good fun. Okay, final challenge then, if you're up for it, because you seem quite up for it. Yeah. Why don't you move around the room as if you are an ant? Okay? We'll see if we can come up with a way that you can make a drawing. Yeah, because you've obviously only got four legs. How many, how many yeah. legs has an ant got? Six. Yeah, that's right. So as it starts, you're at a disadvantage, but if you're doing it like that, I think you need to speed up because you're a very slow ant at the moment. Yes, that's better. Faster ants. <laughs> and so when you've got a long bit of paper, sometimes you can have some fun attaching yeah. pens and things to your arms yeah. and legs. And the other thing to think about is ants. Do you often see them on their own or do you see them in colonies? In a colony. So you in could, a big colony. You could make a colony drawing of ants by taping together loads of pens and then you can all go in the same direction because that's what ants do isn't it they yeah, follow back and forth in the same direction yeah. that's all like them doing their daily trips yeah, yeah. endless ways to draw yeah. and it's very important when you get to school when you go into like year one two three everybody loves drawing and then by the time you come out year six seven eight a lot of people have lost their love of drawing and that's because they're only learning to draw in one way. So the more ways you can learn to draw, the more chance you've got of yeah. keeping drawing going as you get older. Mm -hmm. And drawing helps you learn about yourself because yeah. often you don't really know how you feel until you've done the drawing. So it's a good way of telling stories, it's a good way of getting stuff out. Like sometimes, I don't know if this happens to you, but you come home from school and you've just got to draw. You've just got to get it out. So I think it can't hurt. And yes, ultimately the aim would be to have a better relationship with non-human animals. Well, I feel that we're on this island and we're on this, in this World Biosphere Reserve. So we should be leading the way in teaching other people yeah. how to draw with alongside mini beasts and how to find new ways of talking about it. And I've had lots of lovely comments on my exhibition and I think it's important that everybody's voice is heard. You know, I'm not trying to tell people how to think. I'm just saying this could help. And I'm not an expert, I'm just a very enthusiastic amateur. So I think it's very good to have ways of being able to draw things easily and be able to get to know the basics but not have to feel like you've got to be an expert about everything, you know. Yeah. That's why I use the word mini beast because obviously you can use insects but that only includes things that have got six legs or you could use crustaceans and that would only include wood lice. And so mini beasts is, they're just a gang that hang out, that are small and that's, and they're every day. We see them in our house and in our garden, so. What's your favorite mini beast? Ants, probably. Ants, and what do you like best about them? to see them go about their jobs. I know, yeah. isn't it bonkers? Yeah. yeah. And what's your least favourite mini beast? Mm, probably caterpillars. And I'll tell you why. It's because some, some of them look really cute and then when they touch them they sting you and it really hurts. But then some ants can also bite, can't yeah, they? Yeah, like the fire ants. Mm. They're biting like What's your favourite mini beast? I think my favourite mini beast is a snail. I love a snail. It's a 
when I come home at night and it's dark and they'll be out on the driveway and they're, they're just the most amazing creatures. I think they're very interesting for making us think in different ways. I like the fact that they've yeah. been around for so long yeah. and they, they can go back into their shells and seal up their shells if the weather conditions aren't right and they can stay there for years, which I think is phenomenal. So how did you get into mini beasts and, you know, nature in general? What was the thing that sparked it? I think probably having a pond growing up and being able to go in... We backed onto Bethlehem Royal Hospital and um, used to be able to go through the fence and wander about and have a bit of freedom. And then I went to university to study environmental science because I like the word environment and I thought it sounded really important and interesting. Um, and that's what led me on to working at national parks and wildlife trusts and stuff because I liked working outside and I liked working with kids because it's fun. Um, so we, I used to run lots of environmental education programs where I do mini beast hunts and safaris and stuff. And then I, I think over time I've started to think, well, is that right? And should we be doing it in a different way? And I've always, yeah, I like the fact that mini beasts are available to everyone. It doesn't matter if you live in a city or if you live in the countryside, you can still see butterflies and moths and beetles and ants and worms and all of these things. What is a sentient creature? Yes, it's a good question. I think the definition is probably a sentient creature is one that can feel pain. Mm. But basically it just means that they're aware of their own experiences. So when we put the beetle in the pot, like you said, it just wants to get out. So I think that that would be an indication that it's aware of its own situation and wants to have agency or choice over what it does. I often think that when I've got a fly in the house, I think, well, what does it want? It just wants to get out, doesn't it? It just wants to be out of the house. But then when I see a spider, I think, well, maybe you don't want to be out of the house. It's very confusing. It's quite happy. We've recently found out about the people's plan for nature. They're trying to start a national conversation about the future of nature in the UK. They've got three questions that they want to pose to people. Okay. So, yeah. Rufus, would you like to read out one of the questions? What do you love about nature in the UK? What would you miss if it disappeared? It's tricky, isn't it? Because I come back to asking what, what we're talking about when we say nature. And what do I like about plants and animals, if that's, if that's where we're going with nature? Um, I like the variety, and I like the movement, and I like the sounds, and I like the colour, um, and I like being with other animals that are bigger than me, or smaller than me, or faster than me. What would I miss if plants and animals disappeared? Well, um, all of it. I mean, we wouldn't be here for a start if invertebrates disappeared let alone anything else imagine it's 2050 and nature in the uk is thriving what is different from now that's a much easier question to answer so i would say garden centers were selling a lot less poisons and insecticides and pesticides because that's not helping us on a domestic scale i would say the sale of artificial grass will have tailed off and gone because people will realise that it's not really an alternative to real grass. And so that would hopefully, those two changes, and also children would be doing a lot more drawing and experimenting with different ways of drawing non-human animals in schools. So people would be feeling a bit more empowered. So hopefully that would start to improve some of the invertebrate biodiversity. 
and then that would help all of the other types of animals that feed on invertebrates. So I think we would be living alongside animals in a much more empathetic way. That means we would be caring about what they think and how we treat them. We would be trying to include ourselves in that process. What exciting examples have you seen of people working together to restore and protect nature? Hmm. Well, uh, I'm a member of Bug Life. I like what they're doing. They're the charity that is uh, there to protect all invertebrates. I like it when people come together to say what they think should change. I think the most exciting for me is when you work with kids and they become empowered to know a little bit more about what's living around them and to spend time with it, really. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's Yeah, it's been really interesting. Yeah, no, thanks for coming. And I've learned loads from you and your ant's knowledge. That's great. Are you going to try any of those ways of drawing again? Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode at the end of next month. To play us out, we have some beautiful ambient music from island musician Joanne Thornton and a piece of landscape listening recorded during the summer of 2022 at Rosemary Fields in Ride of some bush crickets. Until next time, stay Stay wild. wild.